I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed these testimonies of people's lives and, and getting to know how other people influence them with regard to their spiritual walk. I, I, it's caused me to stop and examine my own life. Who, who have I had the opportunity to do that with? And it's hopefully been a challenge to all of us in this room this morning. It's really good to see you here as we wind up this time that we've been talking about One Life and all of the challenges and the pluses that go along with this, uh, this great theme that we've been talking about. We're winding up today with this very important concept, and that is discerning next steps. Once I have somebody in mind who is my One Life, once I begin to develop a genuine, lasting friendship, then what do I do next? I've learned their story. I've heard their life. Now, how do I help make a difference? If you could go back in time to interview somebody about a moment in their life that has become a historic moment for all of us, who would that be? If you could pick somebody to go back. I can give you a few that, that I would love to talk to. I'd love to go back and talk to Noah about what it was like to build the ark and then to navigate that flood with all the animals and his family on that boat for over a year. I'd like to talk to Martin Luther about his convictions on the day when he tacked his 95 thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany and, and started the Protestant Reformation. By the way, do you realize that this October, this month that we're in right now, marks the 500th anniversary of that moment in time? Wonder where we'd be had Martin Luther not stepped up to do that. I'd love to talk to George Washington about his fears during that winter in Valley Forge. To Abraham Lincoln about his sleepless nights as he tried to keep the union together. To Harriet Tubman about the 300 lives she saved via the Underground Railroad. To Neil Armstrong, what was it like to take that first step on the lunar surface? And, and, and dozens and dozens more. But if I wanted to talk to somebody who had embraced these principles that we've been talking about over these last six weeks, somebody who understood the value of building relationships and building friendships and speaking into the lives of people the truth about Jesus Christ, there's really only one I can think of that is worthy to, uh, to interview. And that would be the Apostle Paul. I can't think of anyone more skilled or tenacious about his desire to share his faith in a winsome, wonderful manner. And if I had to pick one episode for that interview, it would be about his time in Athens. And fortunately for us, in the 17th chapter of Acts, we have a brief Cliff Notes version of that time that he spent in the city of Athens. So if you want to follow along, turn with me to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. Now let me set the stage for what happens when Paul gets to Athens. This is how it all started. Paul and his new mission partner Silas leave the city of Antioch to revisit the churches from his first missionary journey. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, when I'm thinking about all these places and people and, and stuff like that, it would help me to see this on a map. So we've got a map that we're going to show you up here this morning. This, this hopefully will help. Over on the right-hand side of the map, you can see the city of Antioch right there in Syria. And this is where it began, all right? Paul and Silas decide to leave Antioch and head on their way. Now, they stop at Tarsus. Tarsus was Paul's hometown. It's where he grew up. From there, they went on to Derbe and Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. And then they finally make their way to Troas. Now, it's in the city of Troas where Paul had planned to go north up into the area of Mysia and Bithynia and, and Pontus. He was going to take the gospel up there. But in Troas, in the night, he has a dream, a vision. And in the dream, there is a man from Macedonia 
Macedonia who is pleading with Paul. He says, come on over and help us. And so Paul knows that this is a message from the Lord. And so for the very first time, they take this short cruise across the Aegean Sea there, land uh, over there at Neapolis, and then they, they, they establish a church in Philippi, and, and that's where the Philippian jailer and Lydia were a part of that early church. The, it is the church that received that marvelous book in the New Testament, the book of Philippians. Uh, then down into Thessalonica, another church is established, and Paul, of course, uh, writes the letter to Thessalonica. You got Berea and all that. Well, by the time they reach Thessalonica, there is a group of, of Jewish people who are really opposed to what Paul is doing, and, and so they have to flee. Uh, they, uh, they end up in the city of Berea, and, and in Berea, this group from Thessalonica follows him again, and so the Christians there send Paul off at night secretly. They said, get to Athens as quick as you can. So Paul goes on to Athens by himself, and he waits for Timothy and Silas and the rest of the team to catch up with him there. So alone in Athens, Paul's trying to keep a low profile while he waited for the rest of the team to meet him there. But you know Paul from his writings. He may be keeping a low profile, but he is not an idle kind of guy. I mean, Paul is on the move. Paul is thinking. He is working. He is doing everything he can to figure out what is going to be next. And so he meanders through the city, getting a feel for the people and the culture of the place. And though by the time of Paul's visit to Athens, it had lost some of its glory, she was still a city known as a center of art and education. It wasn't a huge place. It was maybe a city of about 10,000. But it was still this grand central home to the likes of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and other philosophers who spent their time in the marketplaces discussing the most current ideas and thoughts. Paul was in his element. He seized the moment and he seized the stage at the Areopagus to share with the world the truth that had absolutely captured his life, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to make sure that what had happened in Jerusalem did not stay in Jerusalem and that the rest of the world learned about what God had done to change their eternity. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning out of the story. And that is the fact that these truths contained in this story, nearly 2,000 years old, are as relevant to us today as they could possibly be. In our efforts to become more authentic in our relationships and friendships with those who are seeking Christ, this is a passage full of great wisdom. So let's, let's start in here with a few things that I see in this passage. And the first one is simply this, plan ahead. God has a plan for our lives. Now, Paul began his life in the city of Tarsus. We saw that on the map just a few minutes ago. A community of a half a million people, and Tarsus on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean was actually a melting pot. You have the western culture and the eastern culture of the world that sort of converge at Tarsus. Now, that's important to know about Paul's life. You add to that the fact that Paul was raised in a strict Jewish home, and you have these three major cultures that all converge in the life of the Apostle Paul. It's a city with great Roman influence. Thus, Paul became a Roman citizen by being born there. But the Greek culture and language and arts was resplendent in the city, and of course, his deep faith. Now, 
Paul could not have known at the time that he was growing up what God's plan was for him, but God was going to bring all of these cultural experiences to bear as Paul launches out years later on these missionary journeys. Don't miss this this morning. God has a plan for us too, just like he had for Paul. It'll be different than Paul's plan, but no less important. I believe that God is preparing you for your one life, and I believe that God is preparing your one life for you. I believe he's doing the same in my life. Now, you may see God's plan as you look to the past. You don't always see God's plan as you're moving forward. Paul could never have understood as a young person playing on the banks of the river in Tarsus what God had in store for him. So look back and note where God has been working in your life in the past and be assured that what you see him doing in the past, he is also doing in the present. But here's the truth that we often overlook. While God is making plans, he expects you to make plans as well. Paul had a wonderful itinerary laid out for this second missionary journey. It was a really good plan. They would preach in Galatia and Phrygia, and then they would go north into Bithynia, remember? But the Lord had other plans. The Lord had a better plan. It was to go across into Macedonia and Greece. Now imagine how different this story would be, folks, if Paul had sat on his hands in Antioch and said, okay, God, whenever you're ready, you move me out of here. No, no, no. Paul may have been in Antioch for a long time. God used Paul's plan to get him to Troas so from Troas he could make the short leap over into Greece. Don't sit on your hands waiting for God to move you like a chess piece. It's always a partnership with God. You know, God could do everything if he wanted to. You realize that, don't you? I mean, God doesn't need us to get his work done. It's just that God has chosen to work with us. It's a partnership. God didn't have to have Noah build an ark, but that's how he did it. And Noah had to build it with manual labor. This was not some kind of miraculous building. You look at, look at all the uh, characters of the, of the scriptures. Look at Moses. Forty years he spent leading the Israelites through this wilderness to get them to the promised land. Look at Ruth. She had to leave her family and her homeland and go into the land of her in-laws in order to find her place in God's history as a member of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Esther put her life at risk to speak to the king so that her people, the Israelites, would not be eliminated. Mary endured shame and embarrassment with a pregnancy out of wedlock so that the Savior could be born. Jesus put mud on the eyes of the blind man and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the blind man had to find his way to the pool, wash it off before he could see. Peter, before he could walk on the water, had to step out of the boat. Don't you see? It's always a partnership with God. So he wants you to make a plan. God may have a bigger plan, but he often works through our plan and at least starts with our plan. The time may not be right for the plan to unfold today. Your training may not be complete today. All the pieces of the puzzle might not be in place yet today, but he has a plan and he's working his plan. You just keep walking toward him with your plan until they intersect or God tells you something different. 
Keep praying, keep planning. God is working. Okay, here's the second thing I see. And that is prepare for interruptions. Paul's Bithynian passport and visa turned out to be unnecessary when God interrupted their plans and sent them southwest instead of northeast. Now, interruptions are part of everyday life, but I'll be honest with you, I seldom enjoy an interruption. I, I just don't like them for the most part. Now, there are some good ones, but most seem to fall on the negative side. Let, let me explain. A phone call interrupts your evening meal. Commercials interrupt the flow of our favorite TV shows. A baby's birth interrupts our freedom. An illness interrupts our vacation plans. Road construction interrupts our cruising speed on 37. <laughs> a lost job interrupts our career trajectory. An alarm clock interrupts the best sleep of the night and snoring interrupts the best part of a sermon. You can go on and make a list of all the interruptions that we don't like. And yet we dare not overlook the interruptions because that may be God at work. I believe that God just loves working through interruptions. You see, I'll be eternally grateful that God interrupted Paul's plan, didn't let him go up into Bithynia, sent him over to Macedonia because, you see, that was the first time the gospel had been taken to Europe. And once the church was established in Europe, some 15 centuries later, it made the migration from Europe to America. Would we even be here today? Would we even know about Jesus Christ today had Paul not allowed God to interrupt his plans and send him to Greece instead of Bithynia? Remember, God often works with and through our plans. You say, well, why should I even make a plan? Because that's a starting point for God. God got, Paul got to Troas on his own. God took him from Troas to where God needed him to be. Make your plans. Just don't be surprised if God interrupts them because he needs you to be flexible to do that. Huh. Vegetarians who occasionally eat meat are called flexitarians. Did you know that? That's the official term. I really like that word. I eat meat, okay? I'm not a vegetarian, but I like that term, flexitarian. If you're going to be married, you better be a flexitarian. If you're going to raise children, you better be a flexitarian. And if you're going to serve God, you better be a flexitarian. Over these last few weeks, we have been focused on finding our one life, about engaging in relationships and friendships that we may not currently have with the hope and the dream and the passion that maybe down the road somewhere, God will open up the door for us to speak Christ into their lives. Now, hear me say this. It may not happen. You may go through a whole friendship of a lifetime and never get that opportunity. That's okay. Your friendship may be the best thing that ever happens to somebody else's life. But I can tell you this, you'll never have the opportunity to speak Christ into somebody's life unless you have a relationship with them. Our ultimate hope and our ultimate prayer is that through that friendship and relationship, we will earn the opportunity, earn the opportunity to speak Christ into their life. But it begins with living Christ in our lives on a daily basis. You just be ready for when God interrupts that whole relationship with one of the most important moments in their life and yours. Here's the third thing. Discern next steps. 
And this is what Paul did when he gets to Athens. In, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Now, that word distressed actually means infuriated. Paul's walking through the city of Athens, and there's just idol after idol, altar after altar to all these gods and goddesses. And it just grieves Paul to the depths of his heart that the truth is not here. That these people don't know about the one God who gave his son's life that they might have everlasting life. And so Paul begins to explore. And in verse 19, after some people learn about Paul's interest in stuff, it says, they, then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. What an opportunity. The question has been asked. And Paul steps into the moment. I'm telling you, you read that verse and it sounds like a conversation that could happen down on Kirkwood Avenue right here in Bloomington, Indiana, doesn't it? This sounds incredibly current. And much like today, the people of Athens were in inquirers. They were seekers. They were philosophers. They embraced the new and the unusual. They listened. They weighed the evidence and thoughts and the words of the speaker carefully. Now, I've got news for you this morning. For those of us who were born before 1962, we have stepped into a foreign culture that's right here in our own backyard. According to Pew Research, nearly one quarter of Americans claim no religious affiliation today. None. 25%. Additionally, 48% are considered post-Christian. Our culture is becoming post-Christian. Christian, which means our country is officially post or after Christian. I like the way John O'Sullivan defines that. He said, a post-Christian society is not merely a society in which agnosticism or atheism is the prevailing fundamental belief. It is a society rooted in the history, culture, and practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have either been rejected or worse, forgotten. That's where we are. We are like Paul entering Athens. Except for the fact that we grew up here, but here isn't the same as here used to be. So what does Paul do in this unusual culture? Because I think we got to listen to what Paul does because that's what us older folks need to do in this culture. No, he wisely discerned the situation. And took the next step. In verse 22, this is what we read. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Man, I love what Paul does here. He graciously accepts the people where they are and tries to lead them where they need to be. Paul doesn't begin with shame or embarrassment or guilt. Paul then says, shame on you Athenians. What's the matter with you? You're supposed to be smart people. Don't you know that rocks and wood carved as figures and, and faces cannot be worshipped? I mean, two brain cells knocking together would tell you that there's only one God. Paul doesn't begin that way. Paul begins in a very winsome way. He addresses a new culture, new to him, in a, in a terrific way. Now, now, let's learn together. All of us need to learn some of these truths. Here we go. Paul, first of all, compliments his audience. Do you notice that? 
He said, I see you are very religious. Who doesn't like a compliment now and then? So the people kind of sit up straight. They go, oh, he's noticed our religious zeal. He, and, and, and he's interested in their culture. He said, I walked around today getting acquainted with you and your community. I, I, you know, this, this is a nice place you got here. Second of all, Paul is interested in the details. He notices something that I suspect a lot of Athenians had either forgotten about or overlooked because it was just too common to them. If you ever know what I mean? Have you ever had somebody come visit your hometown and tell you something about your hometown that you didn't know? Because they learned about details that you had either long forgotten or you didn't care to learn. Well, th- th- I think that's kind of what's happening here. Paul says, I-, I even noticed that you have an altar to the unknown God. You know, we want to cover every base. We want to cross every T. We want to dot every R. We may have missed a God there, so we got a little altar here to the unknown God. Once again, it's important to know as much about where you are and who you are, are, who you are with as possible. If you're going to go to another country, it's a wise thing to, to, to learn about their uh, habits, uh, their manners, uh, their daily stuff so that you don't accidentally do something that would be okay here in the United States but would be offensive in a foreign country. Now, what you would do if you were traveling abroad, you ought to do right here at home. We need to learn who our culture is so that we don't do something that offends. We should treat our own culture with as much concern as if we were traveling to some foreign territory. And because Paul takes this wise and humble approach, the city gives him an audience, not on the street corner, but at the Areopagus. That was the center of everything in Athens. And Athens was pretty much the center of all this philosophical stuff in Greece. So Paul gets center stage. Why? Because he's encouraging. He's complimentary. He, he, he walks in with humility into that conversation. They say, we, we want to hear you. We, we, we like some of the stuff that we're, we're seeing in you. And then he appeals to their curiosity. You, you know that altar? The one you got to an unknown God? I got good news for you. I'm going to tell you who that unknown God is. Well, you can just now see them move to the edge of their seats. They're they're straining forward to hear what Paul has to say. You can tell us who this unknown God is. And then Paul shares the truth. He doesn't water down the story, but he communicates the story of Jesus and the resurrection with grace and boldness. It's finding the way to communicate the truth that makes it appealing because truth matters. Richard Watley said, everyone wishes to have truth on his side, but not everyone wishes to be on the side of truth. I'm here to tell you that day in Athens, Paul made the truth so appealing that some in that crowd wanted to be on the side of that truth they were hearing for the first time. Paul did a good job of making the truth appealing. And it was all about communicating God's grace and the gospel in a way that was winsome and relevant. Too often, we barge in with theological guns ablazing and then leave the carnage where it falls. We do more harm than we do good. Jesus never compromised the truth, folks, but he always wrapped it up in compassion and presented it like a gift. Andy Stanley made this observation. He said, the right message with the wrong approach yields the wrong results. That's so simple, and yet it's so profound. The right message with the wrong approach yields the wrong results. 
And while the scriptures don't specifically spell this out, I can guarantee you that Paul, through this whole time, was praying for the right words and the right attitude to communicate the right truth to those folks in Athens. So does the story end here with, and they all lived happily ever after? No, it ends with these words in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And others said, eh, we want to hear you again on this subject. We're just not quite sure. Not everyone embraced the gospel then, and not everyone will embrace the gospel today. But certainly no one will embrace the gospel if we don't present it in terms our culture can understand and appreciate. Nor is it likely to be accepted apart from the genuine relationship that we build as an authentic Christian friend, wise and discerning in our approach to other folks. Now, I'm, I'm here to tell you, culture today is no better or no worse. Now, there's things today that I don't like as well as I like the past. There are things that I like better today than things in the past. I don't, I, I'm not saying our culture is better or worse. It's just different. And we in the body of Christ need to understand who our culture is. Remember, a genuine friendship breaks down a lot of the barriers so again, let me quote Andy Stanley. When you care about someone, you're never content to simply make your point. When you care about someone, your goal is to make a difference. Here's the last thing. Never give up. To his dying breath, Paul pursued relationships with those who needed the gospel and with those to whom the gospel had been entrusted. You see, Paul's relationships weren't just with unbelievers. They were with believers to help them grow as well. It's, it's, it's a whole package deal, this one life thing. He never gave up despite the many setbacks and discouragements. In every case, God used the victories and the defeats to advance his truth and ultimately change the world. Human nature hasn't changed. People still desperately need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And building lasting friendships, even though it may take years for the gospel to take root, is still the best way to communicate that truth. So share the truth, but always share it in love. Be ready with a plan, but expect God to interrupt it when he needs to. Discern what your next steps, if any, may be, and then wisely step in to those next steps. And most of all, most of all, never give up. You may be the only hope your one life has. Now, here's how we're going to conclude today. You see, I believe that us building our relationship with our one life is probably the most important thing that may happen in our lives. Some of us have reached several years of life as a Christian and probably never in any formal or informal way, spoke into somebody else's life about their faith. What, what we're doing is saying, I need to change that. I'm in a culture and time where, where I can't just knock on somebody's door and invite them to church and, and they'll come. I, I, I need to build a relationship and a friendship with somebody so that I'll have the opportunity to say, here's what matters most in my life. And that's where the one life comes in. So I know some of you have, uh, on that first week, you put your card in the box. I, I love the fact that you did. You've already got your, your one life figured out. You, you're already making plans about your one life. But I need to know you're with me on this. 
I need to know that you're all in. Now, I don't mean you've got all your questions answered, you've got all your plans made, that, you've got, that you don't have some things that need to be accomplished. I still do too. I got my questions, I'm, I've got my fears. I don't know exactly how all this is gonna pan out yet, but I know this, if I don't try, nothing is gonna happen. So what I'm asking for you this morning is if, if you're willing to try, if you're willing to make this a life effort, if you're all in with me, would you just stand? Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.